This is a Federal News Network podcast. After 11 terms in Congress, Rhode Island Representative Jim Langevin is leaving. He's still got one year left, though. Langevin has been a champion for cybersecurity and promises to keep pushing it in 2022. Federal News Network's Scott Massioni spoke with Langevin the day after he announced his retirement. I still do have another head. And, you know, it's a difficult decision as to whether or not to, to run for re-election. But at the end of the day, I, I decided that now is the, uh, the right time to do something different. And it's really been the honor and a privilege of, of my life to represent the people of Rhode Island's 2nd Congressional District for uh, for the last, uh, going on 22 years now. Obviously, over the next year, we're, I'm going to be continuing to focus and helping to, uh, to get people uh, through this pandemic. We still have a lot of work to do to get shots in arms and, uh, and, uh, and help people stay healthy and, and uh, keep people afloat through a, a very difficult time right now. And so that's going to be uh, job one. Uh, in addition to that, uh, we still have uh, the number of uh, cybersecurity priorities to focus on. Uh, also, national security priorities. I, I still uh, chair the, the subcommittee uh, on uh, cyber and innovative technologies and information systems. So we'll continue to, to focus on, uh, on those issues. But I was wondering specifically on your committee, were there any hearings you were thinking about doing in this coming year, things that you're most interested in for the coming NDAA for 2023? Well, uh, all the issues that you know are, are important in the subcommittee's jurisdiction, and, and we're going to be having certainly high focus on, on, on cyber, on hypersonics, uh, directed energy, uh, information systems, um, oversight of uh, NSA and U.S. Cyber Command and cyber operations. All those are important. I actually have a uh, cyber quarterly briefing uh, the, later this afternoon. So, yeah, all, uh, all obviously very important topics uh, uh, that we'll be focusing on. But in terms of legislative priority on cyber, I'm going to be heavily focused on uh, strengthening uh, systemically important critical infrastructure, uh, that's a, the codifying SICKI, basically the, uh, it, it, the establishment of benefits and obligations for owners and operators of SICKI uh, that enables them to operate, uh, operate uh, and collaborate with, with the federal government in, in, in securing their systems from cyber attacks. Also working to pass the joint collaborative environment. This would basically create a common interoperable tool set for sharing analysis of cyber threat indicators between key private sector entities and the federal government, working on passage of the Bureau of Cyber Statistics, and uh, then the passage of the Cyber Diplomacy Act. And finally, finally, among other things, going to be looking at uh, the the critical technology security centers, which would would create four centers to test and evaluate the security of network and telecommunications equipment, uh, industrial control systems, open source software, and Another critical software, as, as defined by President Biden's executive order, all of which are supporting national critical functions. And one other thing, passage of a bill uh, about uh, for incident reporting. That's another bill that is that I want to get across the finish line this year. What do you see as some of the biggest cybersecurity threats for the United States at this point? Uh, you know, it's always a constantly changing environment. Uh, it is. Uh, certainly ongoing ransomware attacks are a problem that we need to continue to confront. Um, but 
you know, we don't know where the next cyber intrusion or attack is going to come from. And so that's why it's so important to, to strengthen our uh, cyber infrastructure, continue to remind people about uh, updating the security patches, having strong passwords, practicing basically good cyber hygiene so that all the things that they need to do, uh, they, they will do. Uh, to, to just doing uh, practicing good cyber hygiene will go a long way toward preventing cyber intrusions from happening in the first place. Uh, one of your other legacies within the defense bills is bringing the idea of climate change to the Defense Department and having them look at the resiliency of bases and uh, the resiliency of their own systems. Do you plan any further things on that? And I know that there was a report that you had uh, maybe a year or two back that uh, the Defense Department brought through. You know, How are you keeping your, your foot on the gas pedal with that? Yep. It's uh, something else we'll be uh, paying to uh, close, close attention to. Uh, making sure that um, we're, we're addressing uh, climate change from a national security perspective. Obviously, that's one of those emerging threats that, that does pose an existential threat to, uh, to the country's security, to world security. Uh, the Pentagon is such a big purchaser of, of, of fuel, for example. So, you know, continuing to develop alternative fuels and, and reducing our carbon footprint will be essential. But continue to make sure that we are looking at all the, uh, the ways that we can make our, our bases more resilient, identifying how climate change is. And this is a, a measure that I passed uh, a few years back where it was the, the first bipartisan piece of climate change legislation that identified uh, climate change as a uh, ongoing threat to, to U.S. national security. Uh, we, I passed that legislation that that required uh, the Pentagon to do an assessment of its top 10 most vulnerable bases uh, to the effects of climate change and, uh, and um, what it would, how, how we're going to make those bases more resilient, um, making, having, the, having the, the military to the services identify the top 10 most vulnerable military bases to, uh, to climate change and what they're going to do to make those bases more resilient. So we're going to work to, to uh, continue to hold the, the Pentagon to account on, on uh, those requirements. And one last question for you, Congressman. Uh, you've done a lot of work for people with disabilities. Anything else coming in 2022 and 2023 that you're uh, planning on working on uh, in, in that realm? Yeah, so continuing to uh, make sure that there's advanced forethought and planning uh, in disaster situations to accommodate the needs of, of people with disabilities. Uh, we want to make sure that they uh, that there's People with disabilities have a seat at the table when um, when response plans are developed and you know, everything from making sure that, access, that the shelters are accessible uh, toward um, and, and anything else that would go into properly planning to accommodate the needs of people with disabilities when when they you know when it when the bad incident does in fact happen. Rhode Island Representative Jim Langevin speaking with Federal News Network's Scott Massioni. Check out Scott's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses 
and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was a leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision? What are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit? And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have 
ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second. Confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. 
Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.